Amoti lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, amotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Bore Pri Hagafen. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. When all I see is the battle, you see my victory. You see the mountain move And as I walk through the shadow Your love surrounds me There's nothing to fear now For I am safe with you So when I fight With my hands lifted high Oh God, the battle belongs to you And every fear lay at your feet I'll sing through the night Oh God, the battle belongs to you Against the power of our God, 
Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Good to see everyone. If you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, our portion for this Sabbath is called Lech Lecha, and we're going to begin the story of Abram, who will become Abraham, that we're all very familiar with. Now, as we begin at chapter 12, it begins with the words, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country. The, he, in the Hebrew, go forth is lech lecha. Go forth from your country, from your father's house. Before we go any further, uh, let's just quickly look back at last week's portion about Noah. Noah, of course, got through, his family was saved uh, through the ark. They, they, after the flood, they came out of the ark, they began to inhabit, and Abram is going to come down to be ten generations after Shem, one of the sons of Noah. And Abram is ten generations away. Now, let me go ahead and, and make something uh, aware of you that you may not know. When Abram was 50 years old is when Noah died. So, Abram and Noah lived on the earth in the same time, the first 50 years of Abram's life. So Abram, 
probably through his, uh, through the son of of, um, of Noah, Shem, um, you know, knew the stories of the world before the flood and knew the story of the God of creation. And he was aware of all of those testimonies and what had been passed down and shared uh, at that time. In fact, Shem, the son of Noah, who was considered to be a very righteous man, lived all the way into the days of Jacob's life. So people who had been before the flood were alive at the time when the patriarchs begin to emerge and God begins to work with Abraham and with his sons, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There were still people who had come from the story of the ark still alive in the world today. In fact, some Jewish sources claim that the story of Melchizedek, Abraham, um, you know, paying tithes to Melchizedek, that Melchizedek may well have been Shem who was there. Now that's one Hebrew explanation. I don't necessarily fully concur with that, but I did want to point out that before we get started about the story of Abram and Abraham, there's a very strong connection uh, to the people that came from Noah's Ark and the generations that followed thereafter uh, to it. Um, and it brings us down to where God now decides to do something unique and special with this man, Abram. And he's going to call him out from his country, from his relatives, from his father's house, that he wants to send him down into the land where Canaan is at. And by the way, one of the things that came out of the last week's story, if you read the complete Torah portion, was there was a pronouncement by Noah about his three sons, about how Canaan would become a servant to Shem and Jephthah. And the reason is because Canaan mocked Noah, uh, whereas the others covered up the nakedness of Noah, and Noah pronounced a curse of sorts on Canaan, but it was more of a prophetic a description of what would happen to the descendants. And so Abram is now going to be sent, a descendant of Shem, to live in the land of Canaan, and he will rule over the Canaanites. And so it's part of the prophecy that came through Noah in last week's portion. So here is Abram being called now to go to this land where Canaan is going to be at. Uh, where he says, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, and so you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now verse 3, Genesis 12, 3, you probably need to mark that verse because it is a verse that you're going to hear repeated not only in the scripture elsewhere uh, many times, but you're also, if you, if you walk out your messianic faith, you're going to find the reality of these words that God spoke to Abram from the very beginning. That this is part of the definition of the covenant that God makes with Abram and with his descendants is this expression, I will bless those that bless thee, I will curse those that curse thee. In my personal testimony, once I came to understand that I was one of the descendants of Abraham, and by the way, if you're, gonna, if you're on the path of spiritual maturity, you have to come to terms with that. Um, I have seen the reality of this verse 
in my life repeatedly. I have seen those who have done good to me and how good came to them. I have seen those who did not do good to me, who wanted to curse me, do harm to me, and I've seen the harm that has come to their lives. Uh, and I, and I, I, can, I have seen this trend true in my life uh, every bit as much as we read in the biblical record of how it worked in his life as well. And it's one of the characteristics that every one of us as descendants of Abraham have. Um, and by the way, I've taken great solace uh, in knowing this because there's been times when certain people have done harmful things to me and to my family that I had no recourse. I, I, I couldn't do anything about it. But I could rest in this promise from God. Lord, you have said that you will curse those that curse me. So I'm going to rest in that, that there will be justice, and it, it will be perfect justice. It'll be your justice, not mine, and that you will resolve that matter. You know, that, and so I've, I've been able to relax, be at peace, not worry about those issues anymore because I have this promise from God that says he will do that. Plus, it works in the other way. Those that have done good to me and I wasn't able to acknowledge them properly, I wasn't able to, to, to give back to them as I would like to have done, I know God will take care of them. I know he'll reward them accordingly and, and so forth. And it is what has driven me that when I find out that you're one of the descendants of Abraham, that you're one of my fellow believers, I'm always reminded, better treat them pretty nice. You know, because that promise is on their life, and I want the good on me. And so, uh, I, let me just give a simple message. This is a little sidebar teaching to all my messianic brethren. Uh, to my messianic brethren, I say concerning uh, the story of our father Abram, do not curse your other messianic brethren. Genesis 12, 3 applies to them. And if you, if, you, if you go and bless your brethren, you'll get the blessing. If you curse your brethren, you're going to get a curse. You will get the judgment that God will, will carry out uh, his perfect justice in your life uh, for that. So maybe we should follow the instruction to love our neighbor <laughs> and encourage our fellow Messianic brethren rather than cursing them, taking issue with them, always co combating them and being uh, uh, contentious with them. So then this last phrase, uh, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, those words are utterly profound in understanding what is going to follow in the biblical record. In other words, what is God's intent and purpose throughout all the rest of the biblical record. He, God has stated that it is his purpose that in working with the relationship with this man, Abram, and what will follow from Abram, that the purpose of why he's doing this is for the benefit of all families of the earth, all peoples, tribes, tongues of the earth, that his intention is to do good to the whole world, all of mankind. So what God started here was not exclusive to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it was not exclusive to just Israel or the Jewish people. It was intended for all people. And so anybody suggesting 
that what God did here with Abram and what follows to ultimately to the Jewish people, that God was doing some special thing that just gets down to the Jewish people, and that's what God's all been doing here, that is absolute sheer nonsense. And by the way, that is the stated position of the rabbis, and that is the stated position of the Gentile church fathers, that that's what God was doing here. God was setting something up that would be the family of Abraham that would go to the Jews, but then God would have to set up something different through the Messiah for the rest of the nations. And so we get this erroneous theological teaching that, that uh, well, God set up things with Abraham and his family, with Moses and so forth. That was for the Israel. But then God came in with the Messiah and he set up something with the nations. It is false. It is just plain false. Let me tell you why. The Apostle Paul emphatically teaches that the gospel, that the gospel of Jesus Christ was first preached by God himself to our father Abram. In these words where he said, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed, that this is when God was explaining the gospel to Abram, our father. And the gospel message began here. This is the, uh, do a little Bible trivia. When was the gospel first preached? It was first preached in Genesis 12, 3. And the apostle Paul teaches that in the New Testament. So where did we get this idea? The gospel didn't show up until later on. Well, that's the erroneous teaching of the church fathers trying to separate themselves from the commandments of the Lord and from the covenant that God made with Abraham and with his descendants, and they want their own thing. They want to make the church the institution to replace Israel. That's classic replacement theology. Classic replacement theology. This verse from the very beginning dismisses replacement theology from the very beginning from almost the very first words of establishing the covenant with Abram. And I wanted you to specifically take note of that. Um, I always share this story also about teaching about Abram and Abraham. Um, uh, many years ago, I was uh, teaching in a discipleship class. It was a five-day class, and I got to teach all five days. And on the second day... I took a water break that one morning in the class. I came back into the classroom of a different direction and walked in on a conversation of the students where one of the students was saying to the other, you know, when Monty talks about Abraham, it sounds like he's talking about his own father. And I walked into the conversation, I think it was of the spirit, and I walked in and I said, that is true. Abraham is my father. And until you learn that Abraham is your father, you're not going to spiritually grow and mature. Because these promises written in the word of God to Abram, they belong to you and me. And until you take ownership on them and believe in those promises and believe in that covenant that God made, you're not going to receive the benefit of them. The blessings God teaches last to a thousand generations. Curses only make it for three and four generations. Did you know that you and I, right now, where we sit, it has not yet been a thousand generations since Abram was on the earth? 
we are well within that zone of that the power of the blessing that God put upon Abram and Abraham on his son and so forth still extends to us today. The spiritual power of that blessing is still with us to this day. So part of the reason why we should give great attention to the story of how Abram will develop his relationship with God. Verse 4, so Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. 75 years old. Can you imagine starting your life at 75? That's basically what it's saying. It says that Abram, he had lived for 75 years. He'd lived in his father's hometown and with his father and the family and everything that was there. And now God says, okay, now we're going to do something different. Now we're going to do something really significant. And Abram will live to be 175 years old. So Abram, for the next 100 years, is now going to walk before the Lord and is going to be doing the things that God wants to establish with him. God is not in a great big hurry, you know, to carry out his will. And by the way, we Americans, you know, in our culture today, we want instant results. You know, show me where the push button is so I can get that blessing. Oh, there it is. Oh, good. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we tend to be impatient with the Lord. The Lord doesn't seem to quite act, react as quickly as we'd like him to do so uh, for us. I, I do recommend this in your own personal spiritual journey that you should do this at least once in your life is that you should form what is called a prayer journal. That you should take a small book and as you pray for various things, date and pray when you begin praying for a particular item. Then as you see God fulfill what you prayed for, that he gives answer to what it is, log the time that it took from the time you requested it to the time that he did it. And you're going to marvel at what happens. Let me tell you what consistently will happen. There will become a well-defined period of time from the time you ask to the time it happens. It won't be random all over the place. The, 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 a very clear trend will begin to emerge that you will ask, and the, it takes a little bit of time, and then the Lord answers. I've done prayer journals early in my life many times. I quit doing them because I can tell you what mine is. The Lord answers my prayers in two weeks. Two weeks. You know? Uh, Daniel prayed for certain things and the angel came to him and said from the very first day that you prayed God knew about it but he was fighting to get to you to get it done and and in his case it took three weeks it took three weeks for God to get back and be able to answer Daniel's prayer in my case it, it's always worked out to two weeks if I if I go and pray for somebody's sickness or healing or something I don't expect instant results in about two weeks, I'll, I'll see the results. I'll see what's happening for it. Uh, requests for needs. It'll come. It, it's just ironic the way it works out. Uh, the way uh, it seems to work in my particular life. And one of the things that um, that we, that I noted from studying from Abraham and God's relationship with him is is that 
And I don't necessarily can explain all of the reasons for this. I'm just telling you that there's certain observations that become obvious. That as God is not in a hurry to do things according to our time schedule, but he's faithful and consistent in, in keeping it. And that the people that God is used to working with, and we're going to see this in the case of Abram and Isaac and Jacob, uh, one of the things that marks us and tells us about these individuals is they're not superhumans. They're not super spiritual. These people are regular, normal people just like you and me. Um, as we guys always say, they put their pants on just like we do, one leg at a time. Um, they don't just jump in their pants. Um, and you get to see some of their faults. And in fact, there will be times in the story of Abram, he's going to make a couple of mistakes. And by the way, they're doozies. Okay? And completely, quote, out of character for the man that we think God is building a relationship with. In other words, the Bible doesn't hide them making a mistake or sinning. And this is true not only of Abraham, or of Isaac, or of Jacob, or of Moses, or of King David, or of the disciples. The Bible's not afraid to show the reality of the people that God is working with. And we know for a fact that is definitely us as well. We're not perfect. We're not superhuman. We're not super spiritual. We're just regular people who've been forgiven by an incredible God. I always tell people, I'm not incredible. I just serve an incredible God. And that is what begins with this story of our father, Abram and Abraham. Now, this portion, Lech Lecha, is just chocked full of all kinds of information to learn. In fact, it takes us all the way through chapter 17. I need to uh, kind of step back at a macro level and take a kind of a top-down view of what is in this portion because there's some very incredible important parts about God building his relationship with um, uh with Abram and who become Abraham. He's going to go through a name change transition. He's going to go from Abram, the father of many, to Abraham, the father of many nations. Uh, he will go through a name change as the covenant with God is developed. And God is going to develop this covenant with him in three stages. And this is really fascinating to see exactly how this is going to transform. Let me cut to the chase for you and just tell you very briefly. Here in chapter 12, the language and the emphasis has to do with being father. In fact, come out of your father's house, I will make you the father of many. In other words, all the, the topical subject is about the father. When we get to chapter 15, we're going to see the second part of this covenant come together in verses 1 and 2, and it comes down to the issue of having a son. 
So the first emphasis, the topic is on father. The second one in chapter 15 is about having a son. Uh, verse 2, where he says, And Abram said, O Lord God, wilt, wilt thou give me, since I am childless, the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. He's asking him, will you use as my heir um, uh, my servant who's been serving me all of my life? He says, no, you're going to have a son. He's going to promise him a son. And the story here is going to go through, he's going to have Ishmael as a son, but that wasn't the promised son that God was referring to. The promised son he's going to have is going to be Isaac that will come through Sarah. And we have this miracle birth, this miraculous birth of this son. And that's the second part of the covenant uh, that is given to him. The third part of the covenant is over in chapter 17, in which that he um, gives him the right of circumcision as being the sign of the covenant. In fact, let me uh, just read to you here, chapter 17, verse 1. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, remember when he was 75 and he left? Now he's 99. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. You remember me sharing with you last week in the Torah portion about Noah walked with God, but now Abram walked before God. Okay, the maturity, it said, walk before me, be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you. I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. And for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations and I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you nations and kings shall come forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout your generations as an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants. And then he gives the right of circumcision. Um, verse 9, God further said to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants, after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised. At the time that that is being given, Ishmael does exist. Isaac does not yet exist. Isaac will be fathered by Abraham being circumcised, but Ishmael was while he was uncircumcised. By the way, later on, this will have great significance as to God's covenantal promises and the signs and the rights of the covenant. Now, furthermore, the New Testament tells us, since I brought up the subject of right of circumcision, that there is a huge spiritual message in that. In fact, in Colossians and chapter 2, Paul specifically says that when you become a believer in the Messiah, that part of the work of the Holy Spirit coming into your life is that you receive the circumcision without hands in that God circumcises your heart. He cuts away the flesh from your heart so that your heart will now be committed to him. 
And when we look at the example of the difference between Ishmael and Isaac, the son of promise, the son of the covenant, and the promise of that son, we can see very distinct purposes of God. And we are to understand that part of the gift of the Holy Spirit that's been given to us is like unto when God gave the right of circumcision to Abraham to separate him and distinguish him from all others by this physical right, this physical circumcision. Now, so let's go back and review how God established this covenant with Abraham. First, he calls him out from his father's house. So the topical subject is the father. Secondly, in Genesis 15, he gives the promise of a son. So the son becomes the dominant subject, the promise of let's get the right son. There's apparently two sons involved. We've got to get the right one. And then the third part is this right of circumcision and establishing the covenant here in chapter 17. And Paul teaches us the right of circumcision has a lot to do with the work of the Holy Spirit. So I have Father, I have Son, I have Holy Spirit. Oh my goodness. This is the Torah. I have God manifesting himself in this relationship with Abraham and each part of God, and by the way, that is the correct biblical language I'm using, each part of God is making this covenant with Abraham. Now, we call it one covenant. It's not three covenants God made with Abraham. It's one covenant. In the same way that we will learn from Moses that God is one. He's echad. Because this covenant is echad. This is one covenant that God has made. Let me, let me step back for a moment. Let me tell you from a, a, a big, long view what God has been doing with us. And here we are in the early portions of Genesis. Here's what God's been doing with us. And Moses is writing it down for us. From the very beginning, from the creation, all through the many generations, even through the judgment of the flood, up and now into the relationship with Abraham, God is revealing himself. He wants man to know him. He wants to know about him. He wants you to have information that will cause you to be drawn to him. So he's not just going to lay everything out, all the facts. Well, this is my resume. This is God. This is who I am, blah, blah, blah. This is my address. Here's my phone number. If you want to get me on facts, you got to call it, whatever. He doesn't do that. Instead, he's telling us a story as he relates to mankind from the very beginning. And he builds relationships. In this case, he's building a relationship with Abraham that will turn out to be a relationship with his family, which will become a relationship with a nation, which will become a relationship with the entire world. This is what God's purposing and doing here. And each step of the way, especially in these early parts of God establishing the relationship with Abraham, is a principle of truth that is a part of the relationship that you and I have with God today. That's the reason why we need to say Abraham as our father, because God, what God said to him applies to us. Now, we are all of the families of the earth, all over the world, and God's still purposing to do with us what he purposed to do with Abraham. And so, learning God's relationship with Abraham is directly learning about our relationship with him as well.
There's a direct correlation. And by the way, the Messiah does not disturb this process. Messiah causes to be even bigger. Um, in fact, what the Messiah does is a little bit like we start growing a plant here. And the plant starts, you know, when a plant starts growing, when it's green, it gets leaves and it looks healthy and it starts to come up. But when the Messiah shows up, it's when the bouquet pops out. Okay? It's more than just a plant. There's a lot more to this plant than what we realized there was. You know, and so you could say the Messiah was the flower part of the whole plant that God. But the original stem of the plant, the original roots of the plant, which are part of the bouquet too. That's what we're looking at right now with Abram and Abraham. We're looking at the original stem. What did God plant with mankind when he built this relationship with Abraham? Because Abraham will become known as the friend of God. Abraham will be the friend of God. He's not just one of mankind. There is a true relationship being built uh, here for it. And God's intention is to do good to Abraham and to his descendants. Um, and that's like a true friend that you would have in your life. That the true friend would have a great relationship with you, but he would also love your family as well. He would want to see your offspring do well. And, and your wife be cared for and everything be fine with your children and so forth. This is the relationship God is building with Abraham here for that. So, with that as an a, a overarching element of what's going on here, um, I want to um, step into another part of this story um, that I want you to take note of. And it has to do with um, this relationship that he had with his nephew, Lot. Lot came with him on the trip. Lot was his nephew. And Lot had some of his flocks as well. And they were in the land together. And, uh, but their trouble rose up. Uh, family trouble. You know how those kind of troubles, you know, can, I mean, they're terrible when family members get crosswise with family members and, um, you know, it's people get separated. You got to go one way and the other guy's got to go the other way, but we're still family, you know. So Lot will end up uh, having to go down to a region. He chooses what appears by the eyes to be a better place and he chooses to go down into the valley in what we know to be the Jordan Valley which was a very, at that time was a very lush um, area with a multitude of different peoples. And there were five cities down in that area in an area called Sodom and Gomorrah. And in ne next week's portion, we're going to hear more about Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, however, in this portion, we hear a story about when they went down there uh, that... Um, um, that and he was living, that there was a series of other kings that came and laid, uh, attacked that area of the land. They attacked the area of that and they took many prisoners and Lot was one of the prisoners that was taken. And Abraham found out about this and so he loaded up his servants and he proceeded to chase after these kings. We're talking about in chapter 14 here. 
and he chases after them and does battle with them and is successful in defeating these kings who came down and attacked Sodom and Gomorrah, and he rescues um, those that were kidnapped and brings them back safely. So you have this rescue story, and you have what we describe as typically the first battle story we have in the Bible. The first battle story in the Bible is about Abram going and rescuing Lot. And when he comes back, uh, we're going to have the uh, kings of, of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and who's going to attempt to reward him, and, and Abram is going to refuse the reward of them. Um, and I want you to look at this for just a little bit with me uh, to see what this is. In fact, if you turn with me to chapter 14, beginning at verse 11, then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and departed, and they also took Lot, Abraham's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Then a fugitive came and told Abram, the Hebrew, how um, now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eskol, the brother of Anor, Anir, and these were allies with Abram. And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318. By the way, Abram had a lot of servants. The men that were trained to fight were 318. This was a small community. There were hundreds of people who were associated with Abram at this point. He was the leader of a community. A lot of times we look at this story and we go, yeah, there he is with Sarah and they're in one tent. No, no, no. There was a whole community of people that Abram was the leader of. And his faith was also being shared with all of his servants. So this was an assembly uh, where he's at. The, it just turns out Abram is the leader of and he divided his forces against them by night and his servants and defeated them and pursued them as far as um, Hovah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. Then after his return from the defeat of those kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the, the king's valley, and Melchizedek said, a king of Salem brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of the God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, the God of the Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be the God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. Before we go any further, let's, we need to note a couple of things. Apparently to the ancients... And this is, it's speaking to this very matter-of-factly, like this was a well-understood kind of custom. That the, when you go to do something with the Lord, when you want to say thank you to the Lord, when you're going to acknowledge between peoples, that you're going to be at a table, and you're going to have wine, and you're going to have bread. Now, bread is understandable. It's a basic staple of life. We call it the staff of life. Daily bread is a daily consumed foodstuff for a healthy person. Uh, now, I'm not talking about the gluten-free people. I'm, I'm just talking about the basic concept here. Um, and wine is the finest drink that you can have. They didn't have Coca-Cola. 
they didn't have Dr. Pepper in those days. So the finest drink that you could have would be wine. And so they bring out a fine drink of wine with bread, and they're going to do the blessing of the Lord with it. The weekly Kiddush ceremony of having a cup of wine and a loaf of bread, whether you realize it or not, originates from this. It originates from this is the way Abraham would be part of a thing with his family to say thank you to the Lord. It's the most simple, basic ceremony. God will follow this principle. And when he gives instructions to the priests, one of the things that is to be presented daily is a libation of wine and bread to meal offering. In addition to the meat offerings, there is always to be a bread offering and a wine offering. So uh, the temple service actually didn't originate that. It actually comes from, this is the first time we see any kind of a ritualistic form of setting a table for the blessing of the Lord. It's set right here with Abraham, our father. This is where it begins from. So he does this and he gives a tenth. And specifically, it's Abram gives a tenth of all he has to the uh, Melchizedek, this priest of the Most High. Melchizedek means the king of righteousness. Melk, Melk is king, Zedek is righteousness. Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And... Um, he gives a tenth to him. This is the first time we ever see the partitioning out of what is called the Lord's portion. A tenth of what was. So Abram had recovered the goods. They belonged to him. He took a tenth of what he did and he gave it for the purpose of giving it to the Lord. As part of a thanksgiving for God causing his hand to be successful and in the battle that he had to fight. Um, and let me, just for a moment, let me step back. Um, in our world today, we have a lot of people philosophically who struggle with the idea of there being wars and battles. Okay, you know, if you take your basic, shall we say, liberal position in our country, no wars. We don't want any wars. We don't want to deal with wars. Um, whereas the other position is wars are necessary. Sometimes wars are needful. Uh, but let me speak to you from the standpoint of a warrior, a person who's trained to go out. Because if you remember, Abram obviously is trained and skilled to go fight, and he took his trained men. His trained men. Men he had specifically trained to be able to fight. They weren't just a bunch of shepherds. He took men who had been trained to fight. Now here's Abram, this man of God, this friend of God that God's going to build. Why in the world, if Abram has this community and he's representing God, why would he have men that are trained to fight? Because it's the part, natural part of self-defense. It's the natural part of self-defense. And what a lot of people struggle with today is the right of self-defense. That's what they're really struggling with. Whether it be um, 
uh, gun control issues, whether it be nations fighting wars, the issue is the right of self-defense. If there is a need for defense of the nation, and by the way, the need for the defense of the nation doesn't necessarily have to be you. In this case, Abram went to war not because he and his family were being attacked. It's because someone he had a relationship with, someone who was part of his family, the extended part of him, even ones he didn't get along with, he still had a duty to go and defend them. Did you pick that up? Abram had a duty to go and to protect Lot when he fell into the harm of enemies. And so he had the right of self-defense that was applied to the purpose of an ally, of a friend. In this case, it was a family member. When the United States entered into World War II and World War I, we came to the aid of our friends and our allies. And we, we call those right and just wars. Um, and that principle that is clearly from the ancients and clearly uh, laid out for us in the scripture, that's what's being challenged today by the liberal progressive agenda of no wars. Well, it's only part and, par uh, part and particle of they don't like God's rules. They don't like God's definition. They don't like God's wisdom. They don't like God's decisions. And they certainly wouldn't like this decision they would not stand and, and say that we should do this. They would just as soon lot die. Of course, they always change their mind when it's them who's being pursued by an enemy and they want somebody to come save them. The old joke about, you know, the guy who, liberal progressive, who doesn't believe in praying publicly and, you know, the pray, you know God and, and government need to be separate and no praying in schools and so forth. And then they hate gun, they want gun control. They don't want people to have guns and so forth. The first moment they get in trouble, like somebody invades their house, they start praying for a man with a gun to come and save them. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's when the world falls on them, all of a sudden they see the wisdom in having these things. Um, well, those who are wise... And the scripture tells us, those who are wise prepare for things before they happen rather than after they happen. That's the, one of the measures of wisdom. Abram has prepared in case of an enemy comes to attack him. Now, does he trust God? Yes. Is he hoping for peace from God? Yes. Is, is he hope there will be peace? Yes. But he's, he's trained and prepared in case that doesn't happen. And now that he goes out, now he has to fight, now he realizes it's God who has assisted him so that he can have the victory. It's, and so he wants to thank God for it. I've made this uh, statement uh, as a result of my own experience in the military, and I've never met a veteran who ever cha who, who have challenged my, this statement from me. But the men I've found in this world who truly love peace, I don't mean like it, I mean truly love peace are the men who were trained in war and had to go to war. Because they come back from the war and they love peace. They really do. And they don't want to go to war ever again. But they will if the enemy comes to take away the peace. They will fight, you know, for it. Um, and you are looking at a, what a shining example 
in the scripture of the mechanics of the first one of these principled incidents. You are examining how Abram, without hesitation, upon getting the word that Lot has been captured, that enemies have had their way. He's, he doesn't live there. That's not part of him. Um, he's going to come to the rescue of his nephew and his friends. And he doesn't even know necessarily all of them, but he knows that the enemy shouldn't have done that, and he's going to stand for righteousness, and he's going to correct that situation. He goes. He is successful. He believes God granted him the victory for it. He comes back, and he wants to say thank you to the Lord for it. Um, and I, I remember the first day I got back from Vietnam. And I got off, walked off the ship, and I was there in California. Walked off the ship for my first cruise of the Vietnam War. I bent down on the ground, and I kissed the United States of America, and I said, thank you, God, that I got to grow up and live in this country, and this is my country. Thank you, God. That was my version of having a little time with Milk Exotic. Uh, when I came back after the war. Um, and every guy who is um, uh, a part of that, uh, that knows about that part of life, um, you know, has deep feelings uh, for these kinds of things and can relate to this story uh, for it. The, um, but what also comes out here in the story is that, uh, is what we call the issue of rewards. Um, Sodom wants to give to Abram a reward for what he did. And Abram is going to refuse it. Um, and in all right, Abram had won the reward. There's no question. When he captured uh, the captives and he captured the goods back and he brought them back, by all rights, you know, he, he owns them. And the king of Sodom wants to give them to him. He wants to recognize. However, we teach that Abram also understood um, these following things. In fact, let me read this to you. And the king of Sodom, verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. And verse 22, And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high and possessor of heaven and earth that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me uh, near Eskol and Mamre. Let them take their share. And this is a very important dynamic moment, and it speaks to the spiritual maturity of Abram. Abram can see into the future that if he accepts this reward, this acknowledgement from the king of Sodom, you know, after this battle, even though by all standards he's entitled to it, he knows that then Sodom will later say, forget the story of the battle. And he'll just tell the last part of the story, which is, oh, by the way, I gave him all those goods. And so when Abram goes and is successful and he does well, he has the blessings, Sodom will say, well, those blessings came from me. And Abram does not want that testimony. 
The testimony he wants is that if you see anything good in my life, you see any success in my life, you, we will give credit to that to the God of Most High, not to a man. And there is a fundamental spiritual decision that has to be made in every person's life, especially in every young man's life. And it's part of the steps of spiritual maturity, and it's one of the lessons we get from Abraham. In the course of you living your life, do you want to seek the reward of men, or do you want to seek the reward of God? If you want to seek the reward of men, I guarantee you this is what will happen. You'll probably get some reward. It won't be quite as good as you thought it was. And other people are going to steal the glory of it. They'll take it upon themselves. They'll claim they did it. You want to see classic examples of that? Watch a politician. Politicians always take all the glory from the people who really worked, who really did something. You don't hear about the guy that really worked and accomplished something. You hear the politician take the credit for it. You know, the, the, the most classic, the one that we all know, Al Gore claimed he's the one that started the Internet. For crying out loud, Al Gore didn't even know how to run a computer, for crying out loud. Uh, uh, but he took all the glory for it, okay? Just because he was senator and because he was involved with one university who set something up, and it was the people in the university that did all the work, but he took the glory for it since he was a senator from that state. Um, and the same thing is true. The, when we look at Sodom, they are men who seek the glory of men. But when you look to Abram and his family, his life, he's a man who's seeking the glory of God. If you're going to be a descendant of Abraham, you have to make the decision, I'm not seeking the glory of men anymore. I'm seeking the glory of God. I'm looking for the reward and favor of the Lord, not of men. If you are claiming to be a descendant of Abraham and you're seeking the favor of men, uh, you're part of the family that is called Lot. You're related to Abraham, but you moved somewhere else. And you're doing something else. You, you missed the whole point of what's going on. And this little passage in here is absolutely crucial to understand in terms of spiritual maturity. I wanted to point that out since we're looking at the very profound things that we learn from Abram. There are a ton of these principles in here uh, that we learn from our father Abram. For us as a young man, it's one of the decisions that you make spiritually in your life. Is am I seeking the favor of men or am I seeking the favor of God? Um, and uh, spiritual men, they come to that point where they say, I'm going to walk away from the favor of men and I'm going to seek the favor of God to the extent, even if seeking the favor of God brings about the disfavor of men, I'm still willing to do it. By the way, every one of you is messianics. You've made this step to follow after the Hebrew custom. And by the way, Abraham was the first Hebrew. You've decided to follow in the footsteps of Abraham, your father, and he was different from everybody else, and it wasn't necessarily to his favor, and it isn't necessarily to your favor. Uh, they, the, they note your difference, and sometimes people don't like it. And, um, and so as a messianic, some of you have experienced the disdain, the contempt, being cut off from family members and former friends or churchmen um, who 
have found you disfavor in you because you've sought, decided to seek the favor of God and follow the pattern of Abraham and to follow after Hebrew things that Abraham decided to follow after. Amen? So, those are one of the principles that we come forth from that. The, um, I want to take you to um, I take you to the final part of this portion at where God is concluding the definition of the of the covenant, and um, He speaks of this son that would be born in his house, specifically to be born as for Sarah. Look at verse 15 of chapter 17, and this will be the last portion that we have. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah. And you notice that Abram's name is changed to Abraham. His wife's name, Sarai, is turned to Sarah. Her name change took place at the same time his did. Now, what is the distinction or the difference between the two names? It is the addition of the Hebrew letter um, hey. And the letter hey uh, has a specific teaching that comes with it. It's in the shape of, in the, in the hieroglyphic shape, it looks like you're looking at a doorway and there's a slight opening in the doorway. And the letter hey actually means that which comes forth. And it is referenced to, God uses it frequently in many places to bring forth, to express the glory of God. It's like opening the door and the light comes shining out. Um, and the glory comes forward. In other words, something amazing, something wonderful takes place. The, the anticipation, there's somebody on the other side of the door, you're anticipating something, you open the door, and all of a sudden, behold, you know, there, there, there's this person there, there, the glory is there, the event is there. By adding the, the letter hey to their names, in effect, their names were glorified. And that's what transformed it from the father of many to the father of many nations, from the mother of many to the mother of many nations. And to it's a glorious kind of thing. And it speaks to the issue which names are, it speaks to the issue of religious or spiritual destiny. Now, some confuse the subject of what we call predestination. You know, God predetermines for you. That's the polysyllable word for the simple word destiny. We all have a destiny. And destiny is defined for us by things we didn't decide. You, it is your destiny to be in this country if you were born in this country. You didn't decide that. It's part of your destiny. And so real is that destiny, you're considered to be a citizen of that country for the rest of your life. And people will recognize you. In fact, it's so powerful in the destiny that we believe that only if you are born in this nation can you be regarded as truly trustworthy for the benefit of this nation. The Constitution calls for the president to be born in this nation that his destiny is to be a part of this land and of these people. Um, the children of Israel was very important where they were born to be part of the destiny. Your name 
Most people don't choose their name. Their name is chosen for them. It's given to them by their parents. And so the meaning of the name is part of the destiny that you're given to. God changed the destiny of Abraham and Sarah. Um, they received their original name from their parents when they were born. But then God changed their names and gave them a greater destiny, a glorified destiny. The reality is that every one of us have that same thing. Did you know that? Did you know that you have a promise of that when you get to the kingdom, that you're going to be given a new name when you get to the kingdom, God in his kingdom is going to give you a brand new destiny in his kingdom. It will be different from anything you think your destiny was here. Very, very powerful spiritual elements at work. Those first elements are being shared with Abraham. They're setting the example for us to see how this destiny will shape them and be a part of their life. Now it goes on to say, from there, verse 16, I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Did you notice that? Abraham laughed at this. And said in his heart, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. But God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son. And you should call his name Isaac, which means he laughs. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. By the way, what does Ishmael mean? God has heard. I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him, make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. Now, one of the things that we need to examine just a little bit further here, we need to understand why did Abraham laugh? Uh, it turns out, uh, if you do just a little bit of a study on what is this response, this, this human response that we have when we suddenly chuckle and laugh at something. It comes about as a result of that we have a certain expectation. We're led down a certain path and suddenly there's a jolting shift and change in the path. Case in point, man is walking down the street, he steps on a banana peel, his feet goes out from under, he lands right on his keister, guess what we do? We laugh. Why do we laugh? Because the, the, our brain, our, our, emotionally, we can't process that quickly that he's slipped and he's fallen, he simply is upright and the next thing you know he's back on his keister and we laugh. 
it's a little bit like your brain, your emotions have to uncouple the gears and the gears chuckle for a little bit so they can resonate and they get back into a proper position so you can go forward with it. And all humor that produces laughter is you're seeing something you didn't expect, they're telling you a story, you're leaning one direction when suddenly the surprise happens and you find yourself laughing. You chuckle. Uh, the reason why Abraham laughed, and the explanation is given right here, is he is trying to process where God's got this promise that his descendants are going to be like the stars of the heaven. He's going to have many descendants. And he, it's already been ruled out that it's not going to be Eliezer, his servant. So he's now got Ishmael, and he's thinking to himself, well, it's got to be Ishmael. Ishmael's got to be the one. He's got to be the son, and, and he, he'll be the one that will uh, be, bring all the offspring, the stars of the heaven, and so forth. The, the, all my many descendants, they'll come through Ishmael. Praise God. You know, everything's working on. That's what he's expecting. He's going, and all of a sudden, God says, no, not that one. Through Sarah. And he's going, what? Now, Hagar was a handmaid, was a young woman who could bear children. Sarah is an old woman for crying out loud, 90 years old. How in the world is Sarah supposed to bear a child? Come on. And by the way, old people in those days are like old people today. And what would you do if you heard some woman 90 years old was pregnant? I'll tell you what you would do. You'd go, what? What, <laughs> what are you talking about? You'd laugh. You'd have to chuckle. You can't process that. Well, that's what Abraham is doing here. It's that little human moment where God sees it on it and says, okay, let's call that son, he laughs. Because it speaks to that God is able to do more and exceedingly above what you think. You think God operates on a certain cycle, a certain path. This is, this is what he does. I have news for you. God has the ability to suddenly switch gears on you and get you to laugh and chuckle. Because you just can't keep up with him, what he can do if he decides to do it. And it's showing you the reality of Abraham's faith. He wants to believe it. But how we get there is, oh my goodness. I mean, I don't know how you could do that. But he wants to believe. I mean, he heard about the promise of the son. He believed God. Yes, yes, we'll have a son. Great, praise God. And then all of a sudden he says, oh, by the way, through your wife, Sarah. What? He's trying to process the promise with the reality. And you and I go through the same kinds of things. Every once in a while we have to adjust our gears to keep up with what the Lord is really doing in our life. Do not make the mistake that Abraham will do. And by the way, Sarah's going to make the same mistake. And then we take note of it particularly. Where God will ask, why did Sarah laugh? Because Abraham's already gone through this same exercise. You know, for it. Um, you know, for us to come to terms with as well. Again, many things that are in this passage that sets the stage for the next passage. The next passage is going to continue on. Uh, with um, Abraham in Vayera, beginning at chapter 18. But this sets the stage for the covenantal relationship that God establishes with our father Abraham. Amen? Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for this Torah portion. Thank you for introducing Abraham to us and the incredible covenant that you established with our father, Abraham. Help us, Lord, in learning about the relationship that you had with our father, Abraham, to begin to set the stage to understand the relationship we have with you being the descendants of Abraham so that we will lay claim to our heritage and the promises that you've given to our Father as well as to us. Thank you, Lord, for your redemption, and thank you, Lord, for your relationship uh, that you spend with us and, and the effort that you make to have the relationship with us that we have. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat shalom. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.